to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text for today, the Holy Gospel, the account of Jesus coming to his own hometown in the fourth chapter of St. Luke, these words, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Your friends in our Lord Jesus, Perched high on top of a limestone ridge that juts out a thousand feet above the valley floor in the far northern part of Israel was an isolated little village of perhaps no more than one or two thousand people, so small a place, in fact, that the little town of Nazareth, like dozens of other little towns in Israel, is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned either by Josephus, the Jewish historian of the day, or by any other of the writers of that time, except, and this is an important exception, except by the apostolic writers of Holy Scripture. Saints Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them, mentioned Nazareth, and they mentioned Nazareth 33 times. That's three times as often as Bethlehem. Stands to reason, Bethlehem is famous, of course, as being the birthplace of our Lord Jesus, but remember, it was Nazareth. Nazareth, the place where Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, this is where God was made man. There in Nazareth. There in Nazareth, where Jesus spent his infancy, his boyhood, all but about five years of his life. He was a resident of Nazareth. And it was in many ways an ideal hometown, an idyllic kind of a place in some ways to live in, a beautiful place. It had, for example, just outside of town, a hillside that rose about 500 feet above the town, looking down over the cliff even a hill from which one could look out over the whole large extended valley and its plains and see the phenomenal panoramic view that was there to the north were the flat green plateaus of Zebulun and Naphtali. Sound familiar? It should because every Advent season you hear about Zebulun and Naphtali. They're read from the prophet Isaiah where Isaiah says, The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the people that sat in darkness, have seen a great light, just as we sang in our opening hymn this morning. They saw a great light, all right. They saw the light of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And just beyond Zebulun and Naphtali, the mountains of Lebanon, where there was the snow-covered Mount Hermon, rising 9,000-plus feet above the air that could be seen even from Nazareth, that place where Joshua had fought in the Old Testament so many of his battles. And to the west, one could see the Tyre and the, the blue waters of the Mediterranean Sea. And there at a distance was mighty Mount Carmel, the site, remember, of that epic struggle between Elijah and the 500 prophets of Baal, and to the south, one could see the whole plain of Esbron, the battlefield of Israel, the Valley of the Giants, it was called, where King David so often led his armies into battle, and the 
where scattered the bones of so many of Israel's bravest soldiers. Even the hills of Gilboa, where King Saul and his son Jonathan had been killed. All of that was there. To the east there was a Sea of Galilee and the whole plush Jordan Valley. That's what Jesus would see as a boy when he would go up into that hillside and look out over it and see that vast plain down below on either side of him. Not that Nazareth was so isolated, though it may sound like it was that it knew nothing about the outside world. It knew a great deal about the outside world because it was located to so close to one of the largest Roman garrisons in the whole area. And that brought a lot of news to Nazareth. It had right by it major trade routes in the ancient world. One road that connected Damascus with the seaport cities of the Mediterranean, another road that took the travelers all the way down to Egypt, and yet another road that went all the way down to Jerusalem. It was at the crossroads of trade routes at the time. Nazareth was what we might call a real frontier town, a town on the outer edge, a town far removed from the, the beating heart of Israel, which of course was Jerusalem. I suppose that's in part why one of the eventual disciples of the Lord would ask the other, can anything good come out of Nazareth when he heard that Jesus, the rabbi, was from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of a place such as this? A place that's exposed to so much of the world? And isn't it an irony that Earth's greatest good, indeed Heaven's greatest good, comes out of Nazareth? And what a day in Nazareth it must have been when the local boy made good came back to his hometown. A contemporary writer, William Swirla, describes it so well when he says the synagogue must have been packed that Sabbath day, a, a bigger turnout than usual. Who would miss it? Jesus was coming home. He'd left home a carpenter. Now he returns a revolutionary preacher, a messianic hopeful in the running. Big things were being said about him in the local papers. News from Cana about 180 gallons of fine wine made out of washing water. This just in from Capernaum, Jesus heals all sorts of diseases and he casts out demons with a word from his mouth. Speculations were running wild. Jesus was the talk of the town. You know the fuss that little towns make when the local boys and the girls come back as heroes? You knew him when he was just knee-high to a grasshopper, didn't you? And now look at what he's made of himself. Mom must sure be proud. And so the Sabbath rolls around. There he is, Mary's little boy, all grown up, surrounded by a group of disciples. And the people pack into the little synagogue as Jesus stands up to read one of the lessons appointed for that day, unquote. Quite a picture what it must have been like in Nazareth that day. St. Luke reports to us then in his gospel that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus, as was the custom of the day. The attendant of the service would hand the appointed scroll for the day with its reading, just as we do with our pericopal system. So they had theirs and they would hand it to the teacher 
But instead of reading the appointed scripture for the day, Jesus unrolls the scroll to the passage of Isaiah, where the promised Messiah is spoken of, and where the promised Messiah speaks and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release, forgiveness for the captives, restoration of sight to the blind, to send the oppressed into liberty, to proclaim an acceptable year of the Lord, unquote. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. That's the way it was back then. The preacher would sit down, and all the people would stand. And he would sit, and they would stand for much more than 15 or 20 minutes. We're talking hours here. This was the Sabbath day. Hours. It wasn't some warm and fuzzy, casual and cozy, khaki, comfortable, coffee-drinking, entertainment-driven sort of thing. This was reverent silence at the reading of the Word of God, attentiveness to the Word of God as it was being proclaimed then by the teacher, by the rabbi who was teaching and proclaiming it to them. All eyes, therefore, are fervently fixed upon Jesus. And what's he going to say now? His reading from the prophet Isaiah was beautifully done, done so well that the hearers are wide-eyed and awestruck, silence, and they're waiting, wondering, how's he going to apply it? What's he going to say about these words? And then he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. Wait a minute. The scripture read said that the Messiah was going to preach good news to the poor. That he was going to proclaim release to the captives and liberty to the oppressed. If, if it's fulfilled in our hearing, that means that he's saying that he's the Messiah and we're the poor captives oppressed. That is indeed what Jesus was saying. You are the sinners oppressed, and I am he who has come to set you free. I am he. I'm the one of whom it speaks when it says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the fullness of deity dwells bodily in me, in Jesus of Nazareth. And indeed, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Remember the scene of the baptism of the Lord Jesus that we heard about just a couple of weeks ago? God, the Holy Spirit, in the form of the dove, comes down and lights upon Jesus. And a voice from heaven declares, Behold, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God, the Holy Spirit, eternally processing from God the Father upon God the Son, the one true, eternal, triune God manifesting himself to the world so plainly just as Isaiah 700 years before Jesus' birth said that he would. And now he does. But wait a minute, someone there in the synagogue said, wait a minute, isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the son of the carpenter? All but denying a virgin birth that Isaiah also had preached about. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This can't be the Messiah. Isn't this the son of Joseph? Remember Joseph, the one who built our tables, the one who repaired our broken chairs and crafted the yoke for our oxen? Isn't this his kid? 
Isn't this the, the kid of Joseph who played with our kids out on the streets? And now he's standing here in front of his hometown congregation and claiming to be the Messiah that's promised by Isaiah. Who does he think he is? We know who he really is, and he isn't who he thinks he is. But Jesus knows who he is. And Jesus says who he is. Well, talk's cheap, Jesus. Show us some kind of proof if you claim to be the Messiah. Give us a sign. Anyone can claim to be the Messiah. If you are, then flex some messianic muscles like you did over there at Capernaum when you healed. Like you did at the wedding in Cana. Come on, it, your hometown deserves at least that much. Besides, our God is an awesome God. Show us the miracles. Or as Jerry Maguire would say, show us the money. But Jesus isn't going to do it, is he? Why won't he do it? Because God often reserves miracles for outsiders. And so to make this point, Jesus cites two famous historical examples that we heard read in the gospel. Elijah being sent not to the widows of Israel, but instead to a foreign widow for whom he does work miracles. And Isaiah, Elijah, again, healing Naaman, the Syrian leper. Instead of all the lepers that are in Israel, he goes to a Syrian leper and heals him. Why? Because God's people have been given God's word. God's people have been given God's word. Isn't his word good enough? If they won't believe his word, Will they believe it, though even someone should be raised from the dead? No, they won't. God's people have been given the inscripturated word. They've been given the written word that they had received through Moses and the prophets over so many generations. The written word, which after so many years of being without it, brought so much joy, remember, to the people in our Old Testament lesson today that they wept once again to hear it read by the priest Ezra in the presence of the governor Nehemiah. They bowed down and they wept to hear the word of God read. And now finally, they have been given even a greater word than that, the incarnate word, the word of God enfleshed, the Son of God who became the Son of Mary, in of all places, Nazareth, Nazareth, which of all places should have added their hearty amen to a sermon that day, just like the people of old in the days of Ezra did. Nazareth, which like their ancestors before them, should have wept with joy to hear the written word of God being read by the incarnate, the enfleshed word of God. But they did not. No, the miracle of the fullness of the deity and bodily form among them to save them wasn't enough for them. They wanted magic, magic, exciting miracles, even though magic and miracles won't do at all what the word of God would do. And when Jesus wouldn't give them their magic and their miracles, they rose up against him and they pushed him and they shoved him right out to the edge of a cliff shouting curses at him, a cliff over which they intended to toss him to his death. Welcome home, Jesus. Welcome home. And then they got their miracle. A miracle of judgment. As miraculously 
Jesus passed through their midst and went on his way, never to return to his hometown again. You see, it wasn't his time yet. Not yet his time to die. That time would come. It would be another hill on another day. And then when he died, it wasn't the shove of rejection that would kill him any more than it did at Nazareth. It was his love and the love of his embrace of us, of you and of me and of my sins and your sins on the cross. That's what killed him, his embracing the sins of all of mankind. That's what killed him, his love, which was oh so familiar with all of our sins. Familiarity. We can see in Nazareth, if any place at all, that familiarity so often breeds contempt. You've heard that old saying before, familiarity breeds contempt. The familiarity of Nazareth with Jesus certainly bred contempt, didn't it? Sinful human nature being what it is seems to tire so quickly of the familiar, no matter how good that familiar might be. And ironically, the old Adam in us yearns for the novel and for the new and always wants more than it has and is ungrateful for what it's been given. The old even us all, so foolishly seeking satisfaction in what's new and what's unfamiliar. And so even as a man or woman sinfully leaves the familiar bed and board of their husband and wife or the unfamiliar bed and board of another only to find it all failing quickly to satisfy them and thus they must look for something else as well. So also the old evil foe works so tirelessly to separate what God has joined together and he tempts us to leave the familiar bed and board of the word and sacraments where Jesus of Nazareth has promised to be present among us today, not just in spirit, but in the fullness of his deity, in the fullness of his humanity, even his very body and blood, how right here through his word preached to you and proclaimed to you in our day through his sacraments delivered to you through word and water and in bread and in wine. You see, it's here, dear friends, it's here in the familiar word of God proclaimed to you. It's here in the familiar baptismal waters of life that wash over you and your children. It's here in the familiar bread and wine of the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have eternal life. It's here in the familiar that he still comes to you. Indeed, it's in the word and the sacraments that are so familiar to us that Jesus of Nazareth has promised to be among us today, proclaiming, just as he did back then, proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty of forgiveness of sins to every captive sinner. Not in Nazareth, his hometown. Sadly, they rejected him. And not in Jerusalem. Sadly, they rejected him too. But here, and everywhere around the world where his people gather, not requiring proofs of his presence and power through magic as Nazareth did, but here to celebrate that love which makes us familiar to him, 
and which through his word and sacraments makes him so familiar to us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.